Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is God's word for us today. Excited to begin this series in, in Philemon. It's a book you may not really be all that familiar with. I'll be perfectly honest, and for a good portion of my Christian life, I called it Philemon um, until a brother lovingly corrected me years later. Uh, and, and so I'm excited to look at this for that reason, in a way, because it's uh, not very common to do it. And I think there is a great word for us uh, from God, e- even, believe it or not, in this little tiny introduction today. And so would you join me as I pray for us now? Father, we want to take a moment and quiet our hearts before you to remember this incredible truth that as busy and chaotic as our lives are, we have this privilege to stop, to listen, and to hear from you in your word. God, You are a God who is infinite, majestic, incomprehensible, and yet you've made yourself known to us. And in the story of this passage, in the content of this passage, and certainly in the message of this book, we pray you would use your word to change us, God. Make us more like your son, Jesus. Help us to love when it seems like the last thing we ought to do. We pray now together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've said it before, but if there is one thing our world is confused about, it is love. On one hand, uh, we almost idolize love. We talk about love as if it is the only thing that matters. In the very famous words of of the Beatles, right, all we need is love, right? It's that important. And yet, there's this strange contradiction Uh, that we basically have no category for love being hard. If you've been married for a decade or more and you're sort of finding it hard to love one another in your marriage, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. Just move on. Get divorced. You you must have fallen out of love. People disagree with us or even encourage us to change in, in any way whatsoever. We assume they don't love us. They're unloving. Meanwhile, if people are just nice to us and never challenge us in any way, we assume, oh, they must, they must really love us, even if they don't. I think most people see that love is really, really important, which clearly it is. I think we're on the same page there, but we're not quite so sure, it seems, why it's important or how it's meant to work or what purpose love is meant to serve in our lives. Uh, In many ways, uh, we have made love the end in itself. 
It is the only thing worth pursuing. It doesn't matter who we love or how we love them. We're all free to define love how we want and to pursue love how we want because it is this self-defined, self-fulfilling pursuit of love, many assume, that gives meaning and value to our lives. It's everything. It's everything. But what if our love for one another, as important as it is, is not really the point? What if our love is meant to point us to a far greater love even than ours? A love that doesn't place us at the center of the universe. A love that does have a category for enduring hardship. A love that can soften our hearts towards anyone, even people who seem or we think to us are far inferior to us, even people who have deeply wronged us. Church, we need a better kind of love that doesn't play by the rules of this world. Frankly, it doesn't make any sense even to this world. And that is what this little book is about. Today we're beginning just a two-week series through one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It's called Philemon. And Philemon is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Philemon who likely lived and was a Christian in Colossae. The letter doesn't say exactly what kind of relationship these two men had, but there are some things we can gather about their relationship just by reading the letter. For instance, uh, Paul refers to Philemon here as our beloved fellow worker. So they, they seem to have had some kind of collaboration in ministry. We'll find that actually also that Philemon was a leader in the local church there in Colossae. Paul also says, though, that he has heard quite a bit about Philemon's reputation, uh, sort of secondhand. And so they, these men know one another as well, sort of from a distance. Uh, but then in verse 19, he also says that Philemon, quote, owes him his very self, uh, which seems to suggest that maybe he's done him a favor in the past of some sort. Uh, they have some kind of intimate personal history. Uh, it, it, some scholars think maybe Paul was the one, in fact, that shared the gospel with Philemon and led him to faith in Christ. That, perfectly, that, that certainly rather would make sense. But aside from that, aside from those details, we don't really know much about their relationship. Uh, but we do know the reason why Paul is writing to Philemon. Paul is writing this letter to plead with Philemon to receive a man named Onesimus, whom he is sending on to Colossae. He'll be there soon. He wrote this letter to Philemon to prepare for his visit. But Philemon and Onesimus have somewhat of a history together, and it is not a good history. In particular, Onesimus used to be a bondservant to Philemon, which is, is kind of like a slave. And so Philemon was Onesimus' master. He used to be, that is. Now, in the first century, this kind of servitude is, was kind of like slavery in that masters did own their servants. They were considered possession. Uh, but there are some important differences. Poor people uh, often entered into this kind of servitude in, in the first century Greco-Roman cultures willingly. They opted in to this kind of servitude because in a civilization where there was no welfare or social programs to help people in poverty, this was often, in, in some cases, seen as their only option. It was to sell themselves in to servitude so that they could 
eat and, and find some means of working. Now, to be sure, though, that does not mean that this was a wholesome system in any way. Um, servants were often mistreated, uh, but this kind of servitude also was not based on race or ethnicity in any way, which is one way it's very important to understand it was different than the American slave trade that we're all so familiar with and that we often think of uh, when we think about slavery. New Testament bond servants were basically somewhere between a slave and a hired hand, if you will. And in this case, we don't know why, uh, but this relationship between Onesimus and Philemon did not end well. Uh, Philemon and Onesimus had some sort of a fallout Possibly because Onesimus had wronged Philemon. In verse 18, if you look there with me, Paul says, If Onesimus has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that, he says, to my account. So there may be some kind of offense on Onesimus' part. He may have done something wrong, been about to be punished by his master, maybe harshly for doing something wrong, and this might have led uh, Onesimus to flee from Philemon. We don't know, but just based on the details, it seems like that could be what's going on here. Then at some point later, after this falling out, Paul explains that he met Onesimus and, quote, he became his father, which most New Testament scholars agree means that he led him to faith in Christ. He helped him to understand the gospel and helped him know what it means to trust and follow Jesus. And therefore, Onesimus to Paul is now a brother. And this is where we get to the point of this letter right here. This is why he's writing, so that Philemon and Onesimus can resolve whatever conflict is between them and begin an entirely new relationship. Look with me at verse 15. He says, for perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a brother, a beloved brother. In many ways, this letter tells the story of the gospel turning a man's servant into his brother. It's meant to show us how our faith in Christ can radically redefine our relationships with others. And in fact, it's supposed to. It's what it's meant to do. This is an important implication of the gospel. The gospel takes our worst of enemies even, and it makes them our beloved siblings. By forgiving our sins and by welcoming us into this new covenant family, the church, Christ has basically reordered our relationships. He has flipped our social lives and our social statuses even upside down so that those we used to think were far beneath us and far inferior to us can now become like family. But Paul does not urge Philemon to do this, to receive Onesimus right away. Not in our passage today, not in the introduction, not yet. So it turns out within his local church, Philemon had a reputation of being a very kind and loving man. And we're going to see that Paul sees this as an opportunity. He sees this as an open door. And before making this radical request, Paul appeals today to Philemon's love. 
He does this by writing here a subtle reminder and an encouraging prayer. This is the, what we're going to see in our passage. We're going to see a subtle reminder and an encouraging prayer. So first, this subtle reminder is this. Here it is. The subtle reminder is that, hey, uh, Philemon, we are part of a new spiritual family. Don't forget that. I want to remind you of it in the way I'm writing this introduction. See, in one sense, this is written to Philemon. The entire letter is about this one man in his relationship with one other specific man. But in another sense, notice, Paul addresses this letter to a long list of people. First, he mentions right from the gates that he's writing it with Timothy, whom he calls our brother. Notice all the family language we're going to see here. And he says he's writing it to Philemon and Apphia, whom he calls our sister, along with Archippus, who is a fellow soldier, probably some kind of a leader in ministry. And then he adds at the end there, oh, and also uh, the church in your house, everybody, all the members. So when Paul writes to one man to address a specific relational issue that he has, just him, he includes all the other members of his church, uh, which apparently even meets in his house. So he's kind of a key figure in this church. So just to put this into perspective, this would be as if you had some sort of a conflict that you were navigating, and I sent you an email Um, just to give you some guidance on how to navigate that conflict. But in that email, I just happened to CC, you know, the rest of the members, right? Um, But actually, again, the church meets in his house, probably a leader of the church. More accurately, it would be like another pastor writing me an email about a conflict I'm working through and seeing, seeing all of you, right? And so in some ways, not so subtle, right? (laughs) I suppose, Uh, Paul is making it very hard for Philemon to ignore this request because if he does, everyone else in his local church will know it. That would not have seemed so subtle to Philemon, but but it may seem subtle to us, I think, right, as we just breeze through this introduction. It's easy for us to miss this detail. Paul is reminding Philemon, look, these are your brothers writing you here Uh, And also, we're writing to you and all of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, and he says in in verse 3, grace to you and peace from who? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget, Philemon, we are part of a spiritual family, you know. But here's why this is also important. Here's why Paul begins this letter in this way with all this family language. It's because he is about to ask Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. He is about to make the case that Onesimus is also a part of this spiritual family. He is not just your servant anymore, Philemon. He is now our spiritual brother. But Philemon will never see the good in receiving Onesimus as a brother unless he appreciates the fact that he has been made a part of a spiritual family too. And he has been made a part of that family by grace and grace alone. It is the love of Christ that has welcomed him into this family when Christ had every reason not to love him. And more than that, this spiritual family is also a family that he is accountable to. 
for the ways that he treats the rest of the brothers and sisters in this family. And so as simple and subtle, maybe, as this introduction may seem, it really is very strategic. I want you to see that. Because if we don't believe that we have been welcomed into this new spiritual family by grace and grace alone, then we will never be compelled to love, for instance, a former estranged servant as if he is now our brother. Next, Paul continues, and what we see here is, is an encouraging prayer. And here's the content of this encouraging prayer in a nutshell. He says, Philemon, I pray that your love would work. I pray your love would work. So it turns out Philemon, again, had a reputation of being a very kind and loving brother in Christ. He was known within his local church as a man who really loved both God and his people. If you look with me at verses 3 and 4, Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I want you to see here something, the, the substance of his, his love. This, the, this is not just a fuzzy guy who happens to be very warm to everyone. This is a, a, a deep, a rich, a gospel-motivated love that comes from his love and his trust for the Lord and for Christ Jesus. And so clearly, he was a man of deep faith and a man of deep love for God's people. Uh, Paul was really encouraged by this. He seems quick right away to, to mention it multiple times. But more than that, he sees it as an opportunity. If you look actually also at, at verse 7, he says, For I, Paul, have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So this gives us a picture, right? Paul says, this is a loving guy, and that's great. I'm going to draw that to his attention, but I'm also going to use that as leverage so that he will obey this radical uh, request I'm about to make. Notice the content of Paul's prayer here after all this love uh, reflection about Philemon. In verse 6, he prays this. He says, and I pray, this is key, that the sharing of your faith may become effective. For the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is the most important sentence in the introduction. And when Paul says, uh, I pray that the sharing of your faith would become effective, it's, it's easy for us to hear that, to read that, and think that he's talking about Philemon's evangelism, right? Because this is the phrase we use for evangelism. We share our faith with people. And so he, it sounds like he's saying, hey, as you go share the gospel with people who don't know Christ, I pray... That's not what he's saying here. Actually, that word sharing in the original Greek is koinonia, and the word actually means fellowship. Uh, and so he is praying that the fellowship of Philemon's faith, this love that he has for all the saints in this church that meets in his house, he's praying that that fellowship of Philemon's faith would become effective, that it would do something. In other words, he's saying, listen, I've heard of your love for all the saints. That's fantastic. I'm encouraged by that. And I'm praying that this love would do something in you. Important. I'm praying that it would, it would work. 
that it would become effective. And in particular, Paul wants Philemon's love for his fellow church members to become effective for this, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is incredible just to reflect on what he's saying here. I just love this. The idea is that as Christians who are filled with the Spirit of God, Christ himself is in us. We saw this in our series throughout 1 John, right? It was central to 1 John. It's a really prominent theme throughout the New Testament. And therefore, because Christ himself is in us, all manner of good things are in us that we don't even understand, right? All manner. We are filled with all kinds of good things that we don't even comprehend yet. We are all in the process of understanding just how good this Christ within us even is. And therefore, we are in the process of understanding just how much his goodness needs to change us. We don't even know all of the ways that we need to be made more like Jesus. And here's why that matters in light of what Paul is about to ask Philemon to do. It's as if he's saying to Philemon here, listen, I'm about to ask you to do a really good thing. But you're probably not going to see it as very good. In fact, if you respond to this in the flesh, in yourself, you'll probably erupt in anger. But I'm praying that that won't happen. I am praying that your love for all the saints in this spiritual family we're a part of, I'm praying that it will help you see the good in loving Onesimus as a brother. See, the truth is, Christ's goodness is not very natural or intuitive to us. It's not. In fact, we're often very ignorant of it. We tend to see the good things of Christ, and we tend to think, "Mm, that's not good. (laughs) That's not good. I don't want to be humbled. That's not good. I don't want to serve other people. That's not good. I don't want to deny myself. That's not good. But here's the idea. As we love one another in the body of Christ, we come to see the goodness of Christ more clearly. It clicks into focus for us. We see it more fully, if you will, and in turn over time, we begin to see the goodness of certain things that we would never have otherwise seen as good. This, I'm convinced, is what Paul is praying would happen for Philemon. He's praying that all this love he's sharing within the fellowship of his church, this kindness that he is so well known for, would work that it would do that, that it would become effective, that it would do what God intends our love for one another to do, and as a result of that, that Philemon would see this as a good thing and not an unthinkable thing. This is not the kind of love our world is familiar with, is it? In the eyes of this world, especially in these days, um, no one would have expected Philemon to love Onesimus. No one especially not as a peer or an equal. He was in a totally different socioeconomic class, far beneath Philemon in every way. He apparently wasn't even that great of a servant. He may have stolen from him and even ran away. And if he did, by the way, then Philemon technically still had a legal right 
to own him as his master. This man had no earthly reason to love Onesimus as a brother. None. But Paul is basically saying, I'm praying that this love you have for the saints will enable you to. I'm praying that it will help you to stop seeing this man as useless property and to begin seeing him instead as a beloved brother. This is the point Paul's trying to make. This is our big idea for today. That loving our brothers and sisters in Christ should help us to love like Christ. It should. If our love for one another is working, this is what it will do in us over time. There's sort of this cycle. As we, as we love one another well as brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to know Christ more. As we come to know Christ more, we get better and better at loving like him. We discover the goodness of Christ in us, and it helps us to love one another like he does. Why? Well, because if in Christ, this holy Majestic God of all creation has loved selfish, rebellious people like us? If in Christ God has loved us when he had no reason to, if in Christ he has loved us when it would have been perfectly reasonable and just for him to condemn us, if that is the love we see in the gospel, well then maybe it's not so unthinkable to love an old estranged servant as if he's a brother. It's what we see in our passage today. Next, I want to just consider what does this mean for us as a church? Uh, I, I think in light of what Philemon, or Paul is trying to do here in this introduction, I want us to consider how do we know if the love we have for one another is working? How do we know? Uh, how do we know if we really love one another with this deep sort of spiritual love that's rooted in the gospel. Uh, in light of what we just read, here are three questions that are designed to help us think through this, help us consider this. Is our love working? The first question is this. Are we known for loving our fellow church members? Is that a thing that people see us doing on a regular basis? Are we known for that? See, if our faith in Christ has not drawn us into committed, loving fellowship with one another, if we're not living as a loving member of this family, well, then our love won't become effective, right, for this full knowledge of all the good that is in us. This gospel love cycle cannot work. It cannot change us if it isn't happening. And so first, I just want to ask us, could this introduction be written to or about us? Could it be? If Paul was writing this letter to you, would he have anyone else to address the letter to? I want you to look around this room today. I want you to consider, are, are these the people that we are committed to following Jesus with in this way? Uh, are, are we willing to let one another keep us on the hook to love one another like Jesus, even when it's incredibly hard to do that? At Redemption, this is in part what membership is all about. This is why it's such a high value for us. Because of passages like this one, we are convinced that we can only truly discover the goodness of Christ in us when we are committed to loving one another as a blood-bought family 
of God. So if you're discouraged today by your lack of love in all areas of life, if, if you wish that you uh, love people more like Jesus, much more naturally, here's, here's how you can start. You start by putting yourself on the hook for loving Jesus' people. Tell them you will. Expect them to help you. And this is how he makes us to love like him. If you are a member of our church or if you're moving towards membership, eager to do that, I want to ask you this way. Uh, is this the way that other members of our church would describe their relationship with you? The way that Paul describes Philemon's relationship with his church. Uh, I want to be clear. This is not to say that uh, the point is to be known or to be recognized. This is not about proving ourselves in any way. What I'm talking about here is very simple. It's very practical. Does anyone else in this room derive much joy and much comfort from your love? Do they expect their hearts to be refreshed by you? Or would most people probably say instead, hey, what's your name again? How long have you been here? Uh, or worse, would they say, or rather, worse, would they expect their hearts to be depleted by us? Because we always seem disappointed with other people. We're always consumed by ourselves and our concerns, right? In order for our love to work in this way, it's not enough just to join the church, to go through the process. We have to actually love the church. This week, uh, a few of you were without power, I asked around just to see how some people were doing, and, and I learned along the way that Anna Shear, our deacon of children's ministry, from what I understand, raised some money uh, so that the Knit family can replace the groceries that were in their refrigerator uh, that were spoiled. Um, you, you, you probably never would have heard of that unless I just said it. Some of you, though, heard about it and, and even gave money. This is the kind of thing that happens in our church all the time. And as a pastor, it is so cool for me to see. I didn't do anything. That just happened. And here's why it happened. It happened because Anna is known for this kind of love in the life of our church. Her heart, our hearts are often refreshed through her. That's the kind of love that could work in this way. That could make us love others when it's really, really hard to. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to someone who's relatively new in the life of our church, and they have told me, oh, hey, I met the Haynes family. Where are they? I saw them here. Okay, there you go. I met the Haynes family. They're so sweet. Uh, they had me over to their house, right? Everybody's been to the Haynes' house, right? <laughs> John and Christy are known for this kind of love in the life of our church. We're not surprised to hear that. This introduction could be written of them. This list could never end. Uh, Dana gave me a s'more brownie because I told Nolan at the men's camping trip that I love s'more stuff. She brought it to me today. I wasn't even expecting that. She wasn't either. Uh, Julie Schwab scheduled and paid for Carrie to get a massage just as a gift. Hey, I think this would bless you. Uh, Ewald and Karen Tolt lent us sleeping pads so that I had some fighting chance of convincing Carrie that tent camping is a normal thing that most people enjoy doing. She still doesn't have a full knowledge of the goodness of camping. Um, but Karen and Ewald loved us. 
enough to try and help me in that. I could go on and on with this list. I could go on and on. But if I did, here's the point. If anyone in the life of our church, any member, tried to list all of the tangible ways that we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, would your name ever be mentioned? Would there be any reason for it to come up? I want you to see that loving one another in this way is not just important because it's the right thing to do. It's not just important because it proves how pious or morally upright we are. That is not the point of it at all. No, it serves a far greater purpose than that. The love that we share as members of this spiritual family is meant to do something in us. It's meant to become effective, to bring us to a deeper, more complete knowledge of Christ and who Christ is. It's meant to do that in a way that helps us to see the goodness in loving others like he loves them. Uh, But when we keep one another at a distance, when we isolate ourselves and we live the Christian life in a vacuum, this is what we are robbing ourselves of a deeper, fuller knowledge of Christ that will help us to love even the last person we would want to love. And so if you are hearing this today and you're thinking, well, no, <laughs> uh, I guess I'm not, I'm not known at redemption for this kind of love. Listen, please don't hear me saying today, well, tisk tisk, you need to do better, right? That is not the point. Instead, I want to invite you into this beautiful process of discovering the infinite goodness of Christ as he awakens all kinds of good things in you that you didn't even know were there. But it is the fellowship of our faith in Christ that makes all of this work. And so are we known by other church members for the way We love them. Next, I want us to consider, number two, do we strive to love one another better? Do we strive to love one another better? Uh, By better, of course, I mean here more like Jesus, right? I mean better according to the infinite goodness of Christ in us. Not, Not better according to our definitions of love or some other worldly standard. Here's what I mean. Do you long... For Christ himself to say of you, hey, you're getting better at this. That's how I love people. And you're getting the hang of it. This is really important because if there's anything noteworthy about Christ's love that most people know, uh, it's that he loves people when it's really hard to love people. He loves us while we are yet sinners. He loves us when it seems actually to make the most sense that maybe he wouldn't. He loves us. See, when people define love for themselves, they don't tend to define it that way. When we define love for ourselves, we tend to define it in ways that serve us, not in ways that challenge us and stretch us. But the truth is, if we want to get better at loving people, we need to get better at loving people when it's hard. And I suppose in some ways this could be said about most things. For example, sports, basketball. Uh, You could be really good at basketball, 
Uh, you could have all the necessary skills. You could even have the frame of Tim Morrow, 6'7", towering frame. Um, but if you choke under pressure, and, and if you get winded the minute you step on the court, if you lose your composure as soon as somebody else gets in your head, well, here, how good are you really at basketball? Right? If you can make 100 shots on your own every single time you're in the backyard with no one there, but you can't hit the rim in a playoff game, I hate to tell you this, you're not really that great at basketball. You need to be good when it's hard to be good. You, you need to be good when it really counts. And the same is true of love. If we're not really good at loving one another when it's really hard to love one another, we're not really good at loving one another. I'll say that again, that's really important. If we're not really good at loving one another when it's really hard to love one another, we're not really good at loving one another. Here's the real problem. <laughs> we're not. We're not naturally good at loving one another, not in this way. Um, this kind of love doesn't just come intuitively to anyone. Uh, the truth is, it can, uh, can't even come from us at all. It requires a deeper personal knowledge of Christ in us. And, and here's how we tap into that knowledge of Christ. It's by getting better at loving one another. As we give ourselves to a life lived together in fellowship, Christ meets us in our loving fellowship. He reveals himself to us more and more until eventually we can look at the most irritating church member in the most frustrating of circumstances when we have seemingly everything to lose and nothing to gain, when most people would expect us right about then to erupt in anger and instead we can think, yeah, you know, I need to love them right now. It would be good even for me to love them right now. So do we strive to be better at loving one another in, in this way? Are you eager for the day when this one church member doesn't bother you quite so much? Uh, are you eager for the day when joining or leading a small group doesn't feel quite so draining to you? Are you eager for the day when having that hard conversation that you know you need to have feels better to you? It feels more natural even than that other hour of screen time that you don't really need to have. Does it bother us when our love doesn't look like Christ's? Because if so, if we long to love one another better, probably means our love is working. It's working. And finally, last question, do we actually love one another even when it's really hard? What, what happens when this is not a theory anymore? What happens when the rubber meets the road here? I'm going to be brief here because this is central to next week's sermon. But the truth is, for all of us, some people are far easier to love than others. Right? Sometimes, whether it's our pride or our comfort or our sense of self-importance, sometimes... We have to lose something to love certain people. It, it hurts us to love certain people. It costs us 
If you're a member of our church, just consider the kind of person who would make you cringe if they stood up at a members gathering to share their testimony and join our church. Who would make you cringe? Just in theory, if you oversee a lot of people at work, I'm gonna talk to you for a bit. Uh, imagine one of the least influential employees who frustrates you the most wants to join our church and follow Jesus with us, how would that be going in your heart as they stood up here to share that testimony? If, as a member, they tried to address sin in your life, would you have a hard time receiving that correction from them as if they're a brother or a sister? Uh, would you have a much easier time receiving it from another brother who's more sort of on your level, at a similar status as you? or a different, different way of looking at this, as a predominantly white church, uh, how would we feel if more and more ethnic minorities started to join our church? And they had a different cultural background, a different way of speaking and, and dressing. Maybe they were in a different socioeconomic status than us. Maybe they had different politics than us in some ways. I, I know our church. I know that we would be kind to anyone who joined our church. I believe that. But would we really love them as a brother and a sister, an equal, a peer in the family of God? That is what Paul is asking Philemon to do here. Do you see the point of Philemon? Whoever it is that we are reluctant to love in this way, what would it take for us to see the goodness in loving them as a brother or a sister in Christ. This is what we should be asking ourselves as we work through Philemon this week and next. But Paul begins here by giving us a little hint. Ultimately, what this kind of love will take is a deeper, fuller knowledge of Christ. And here's how we really know that we have that when it is really hard to love a fellow Christian as a brother or sister, will we do it anyway? Or will we not? Will we say, oh, no, no, not them. Not him. He will never be my brother. He will never be my equal. Or instead, will we double down on the self-denying, sacrificial love of Christ and embrace them as family. See, to do the latter, to do the latter is not only a good thing, church. It is a miraculous thing. It is a work of God that only he can accomplish in us through his son, Jesus Christ, and through our knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, church, let's pray that he will. Let's pray that our love for one another would work.